Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction. In this episode, we will be finishing our mini-series on discourses of delay when it comes to climate change. So as a reminder then, in the last episode, we covered six out of the twelve discourses of delay that were covered in the paper by Lam and Steinberger. We've talked about shifting the blame via individualism, free rider arguments, and whataboutism. We've also talked about emphasising the downsides of the transition away from fossil fuels and towards a net zero economy and planet through appeals to social justice or global development or policy perfectionism, all of which would emphasise the downsides of the changes we need to make to address climate change. So with six out of 12 covered, we're halfway through the discourses. So far, though, I've covered the discourses that I genuinely expect you, the type of people who might be listening to this, not to really buy into all that much. However, I think some of these next six might be something that we are all, including me sometimes on the show, guilty of from time to time. Like other points on this list, the argument that the paper's authors are making is subtle, because the arguments themselves are cleverer than outright denial. They all contain some truth to them, some valid concerns. Maybe some arguments are more defensible than others. The difficulty, and the thing we have to keep aware of when these arguments tip over, from valid critiques into inadvertently justifying inaction or insufficient action on climate change. In some ways, the other reason for grouping these last six together is because it feels like elements of these arguments have long been part of the fundamental and unwinnable battle over how to convince people that climate activists have so often worried about. Are you more likely to see positive changes from painting tales of dread and woe and emphasising the consequences of inaction, but then you risk being too gloomy? Or are you better off motivating people with a positive vision of the benefits of a decarbonised future and the progress which we've made already, and risk being too complacent? I don't think that there is any one answer to this, and I'm not interested in policing everyone's tone, but embodying pure fence-sitting glory is just to say that you can obviously go too far in either direction, and at that point, you might end up justifying delays. So let's move on to the third category of the delaying discourses that they deal with in the paper, which the authors describe as pushing non-transformative solutions. And these are arguments that really downplay how difficult the challenge of climate change is going to be. First on the list, then, is techno-optimism. Now, it's clear to everyone that new technologies are going to be key to addressing climate change. We can all easily imagine ways that this is the case, whether we're talking about cheaper and more efficient renewables to provide abundant electricity, efficiency technologies reducing the amount of energy we need for useful services that we want to provide, and so on. And everyone loves the optimistic stories, looking at how rapidly renewables have come online and got cheaper, imagining techno-utopian visions where we can engineer our way out of problems that we've engineered our way into, and putting our faith into human ingenuity and innovation to conquer one more pernicious problem and adapt ourselves to the world that we live in more fully again. But of course, excessive techno-optimism does have the potential to reinforce delay. This can be to do with the specific promise of specific technologies. For example, maybe the narrative is that all we need to do is to perfect carbon capture to bury emissions underground, or that clean, cheap and abundant energy from nuclear fusion is going to be the silver bullet that allows us to address climate change. Broadly, I'm in favour of investment into developing both of these technologies, but not if it distracts from the urgent tasks and investment that is needed right now in front of us. It is tempting to focus on that, though, and to limit studies to research efforts for technologies that we can deploy in the future. Again, sometimes you will even see this being used by fossil fuel companies, 
ExxonMobil is a classic example. It has these highly publicised investments into algae biofuel. But there is a bit of a subtle, a really subtle narrative here that you have to understand. Because what this is saying, their investments in this algae biofuel, which are not really serious enough for them to actually use that as their main product and sell that as their main product. It's a tiny fraction of their overall capital expenditure and R&D expenditure. So this is not a viable route really for them to transition away from the oil business. And it doesn't look like they're serious about doing that at the moment. But the narrative that is advanced by doing this, and then more importantly, plastering it over all of their advertising campaigns, is that we don't really need to change anything about the way we live. Disruptive and urgent change is not really necessary, not even for Exxon. They just need to crack this biofuel stuff, and then they can seamlessly transition over to that. And of course, pushing things like this does of course mean that we would still be using the internal combustion engine. So there's no need to switch away from that. We'll just find a way to make it clean, and that breakthrough is just around the corner. Don't worry. And then Exxon can continue to exist, and uh, they'll be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So this is a sort of example of techno-optimism, which is pushing non-transformative change. But the reality now, as we say many times on this show, is that we have many of the technologies we need. We know what low-carbon futures will look like, and we have much to change and much to deploy and much to alter in the way we behave already if we're going to get to those futures. Not all of the climate change battle is to be won in labs developing new ways to harness or use energy. A lot of it has to be fought in replacing this gas-guzzling vehicle and that old boiler with a clean alternative. And we already know broadly how to do that. It's just a matter of getting on and doing it. And of course we can have too much faith in technologies to solve all of our problems and ignore other aspects of transformations that might need to take place, whether they're economic or political or behavioural, things that are more difficult, things that require different actors to take part. What's more, I think we give in too often to a sort of techno-determinism. Technology will inevitably evolve in a certain way, and it will inevitably shape societies in a certain way, and there's little to do with human decision-making. And in this case, we don't need to concern ourselves with any of these thorny political or societal issues. We simply wait for technology to develop almost by itself as some unseen robot that uh, <laughs> pursues its own path. And in this case, we're waiting for technology to come along and to marvellously unfold and solve our problems for us. Now, it is clear why people would want to take this path, particularly when climate change can be an issue that makes many of us feel so personally and individually powerless. But also, more broadly, politically, it allows you to paint this rosy picture. It avoids confronting controversial questions of lifestyle, consumption, international justice, equity, uh, laws that might need to be changed or anything like that, or indeed taking actions that might be unpopular with some. You're just waiting for the future in which we've solved this problem to arrive. But that puts you in a state of passivity, and that, in its turn, is potentially delaying action. And I also think we should emphasise that this idea that the path by which technology will inevitably unfold is, is determined in advance, that, that's not true at all. Not only are there choices about which technologies we develop, and how we deploy them, and the ways in which we choose to use them and regulate them, but there are even choices about when this happens within given technologies. Think of what a techno-optimist, or a techno-determinist, I suppose, might think about in the 1940s. Would they, at that stage, when they're looking at the V1 and V2 rockets, think that it was inevitable that humans would be landing on the moon within 20, 30 years? 
Think of someone watching that moon landing in 1969. Would they believe you if you told them that in 2020 there was no permanent base on the moon? That there was no manned mission to Mars that had happened? What I'm saying here is that all of these things have evolved due to political decisions that were taken at the time for a variety of different reasons, right? The techno-determinist mindset might imagine that it's an obvious and simple progression from the first few humans on Mars to establishing a permanent base there, or the same for the moon. But that doesn't actually make it the way that things evolve, because all of these things are subject to a great number of human decision-making processes. I think another example, which is probably even better than that, is a concrete example that uses the techno-optimist's favourite technology when it comes to climate change, which is solar panels. There's a very famous graph, you can get it on Our World in Data if you want to have a look at it for yourself, Uh, solar PV module prices versus cumulative capacity. And the point here is the point that's made quite often uh, that we've talked about before, which is that actually the price of something doesn't just come down with time, but with the cumulative capacity that you have deployed of it. The learning rate depends on you actually deploying it. And this is a problem for technologies that are trying to come in and replace uh, earlier uh, technologies that were dominant in the case of, for example, solar trying to replace fossil fuel electricity generation. Because it means that you have this era at the start where not much has been deployed and the price is extremely high when it's very uncompetitive. And someone has to come along and eat up all of that cost and effectively spend a lot of stuff on something that is going to be seen to be very expensive um, so that the price can come down and so that the learning and the technological development can take place. So if you look at this graph which shows how the price of solar panels declines with the actual deployment of the panels, it's very interesting. When only one megawatt of solar had been deployed, it cost around $70 per extra watt of panel that was being deployed. That was in 1977. The prices are in modern dollars. When 100 megawatts had been deployed, 100 times more, it was $15, and that was 1985. As we exceed 100 gigawatts in capacity, we can see the price going down below $1 per watt in 2012. And this has continued and continued and continued in recent years to get much, much cheaper. In other words, the more you deploy, the cheaper it gets, and how. But there are now individual farms of solar panels, these mega farms that are uh, over a gigawatt in size, easily, in terms of capacity. And that, that, that's a fairly common thing nowadays. Let's rewind back, though, to 1977, when there was just that first megawatt installed. Imagine some major project had said, we're going to deploy 100 megawatts of solar panels. These days, solar farms exist that are much smaller than that. Sure, it would look like an expensive project for not much return at the time, because there would be nuclear power plants and so on that were bigger at the time. But think of it as an investment in the future. At the time, if you wanted to do that in 1977, the estimated cost would have been 700 million modern dollars. That's just 10% of the money that one guy, Howard Hughes, has had access to at the time. Less than 1% of the US military budget for that year, 1977. But it would have accelerated the development of solar panels by a decade, maybe even more, by kickstarting that industry with this one mega project and getting that learning curve crunched on. Of course, it's not quite as simple as that, but the point is that it would have been possible in 1977 to divert this kind of funding to the solar industry. And if that had been done, who knows where we would be now? 
Who knows where we would have been 10, 20 years ago when people were still saying that renewables were still too expensive. In such a context then, how can you possibly say that human decisions don't matter and technological development is inevitable? If a president and a few hundred senators or people in Congress were interested in this, they could easily have deployed that level of money to this sort of project. If we were 1% less focused on fighting the Cold War and winning ideological battles, where could we be? And so on and so forth. And by the way, it's not like this would have been a ridiculous thing for people to do at the time, because even in the 1950s, people like Edward Teller and so on, physicists from Los Alamo who we covered in our series on nuclear fusion, were warning about the potential for the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere to start causing serious damage. And of course, we go back to Arrhenius for the idea that burning coal may eventually warm the planet, and that's the 1890s. So (laughs) the motive was there. Uh, alongside, of course, the oil embargo, which had shown the terrible economic consequences of depending for your energy on other countries. Indeed, that was why many renewables first started to be developed in the 1970s. But if that project had been even bigger, then, well, as I say, who knows where we would be now. So when it comes to technological determinism, of course we have to admit that technologies do shape societies. How could they not? But people also make decisions that affect how they are developed and used all the time. And we can't downplay that. So simply having the technologies available, invented with R&D in the lab, it's obviously not sufficient to ensure that we're going to live a sustainable life on this earth, or tackle climate change in a timely way. If this was how the world worked, we'd be home and dry by now. Those of you who listen to the series I've done on negative emissions which is probably still on Patreon for most of you, but will end up being released free eventually, will understand that while the technologies may already be ready, the difficulties of scaling them up to a level where they can actually address the problem are not simply going to be solved by this first-order innovation stuff. Now, I think this techno-optimism is most prevalent in the energy sector, and maybe in transport too, but it's worth pointing out that simply imagining genetically modified organisms, GMOs, or hydroponic vertical farming, or whatever your preferred technology may be, as a catch-all technological solution to the massive impact that agriculture has on the natural environment. Well, this poses similar questions of whether we're being too techno-optimistic here, and that's allowing us to delay thinking about and implementing some of the necessary changes that are going to make these things environmentally sustainable. And it's not really a surprise that this is the sort of thing you will see when some individual sector is asked about climate change, especially if they pollute and the solutions can seem quite difficult for them. I bet if you ask a bunch of airline executives about their climate impact, they will probably eventually talk about electric planes. But then there are questions that arise from that. How close is that technology to actually working? Will it really viably do what you say it will do? How long do we have to wait for that to work? And what are you going to do with your business and your emissions in the meantime? But it's obviously much rosier to talk about how you're forward-looking and forward-thinking and how you're going to be at the forefront of this new technology, blah, blah, blah. And of course, it relies on much less investment to throw a few hundred million at research and development than it does compared to saying, actually, we are in the process of changing our entire business model to move away from the one thing we do, which is fly planes that burn jet fuel, you know? And more broadly, there is always going to be a lot of criticism of some environmentalists 
for painting a world where all we need to do is switch to electric vehicles and solar panels, and suddenly we have no impact on the environment at all. Ignoring the impacts of agriculture, resource depletion, consumption, other forms of pollution, and so on. I think that very real question of what kind of lifestyle we can sustainably support people to live is out there, and what social changes we need to think about making to make sure that as many people as possible can live that kind of lifestyle. All of these questions of distribution and so on, they're glossed over by techno-optimism. And again, there's also a contingency of people who will say that technologies merely delay or prolong the inevitable, or maybe even make things worse by accelerating the continued limitless economic growth and resource use, which is at the heart of our disastrous impact on the planet and its human and non-human inhabitants. In other words, this really goes beyond the ongoing debate over what extent behavioural change is needed and what extent we need to deploy new technologies to contribute to the solution here, and towards more fundamental questions about how we want to live our lives as a species. But bland techno-optimism papers over these problems, not just by telling us that the future is bright as long as we invest in these new technologies, not just by telling us that technology is going to come along and save us and absolving us of the need to act or change anything, but also with its determinism just saying that this is all kind of inevitable and we don't even need to worry philosophically about making the choices, because the choices have been made for us. And all we need to do is lie back and wait for it to happen. Bland techno-optimism papers over these debates as well, because there is no question about what will happen. Technology will come along, and our society will be shaped by how it changes. A little bit of optimism, of course, is a good thing, and it can contrast the doom and gloom that a lot of people associate with thinking about the climate or the environment, which makes us want to bury our heads in the sand and ignore the problem. I don't think that is a good attitude to have either. But too much of it, and you might be making the climate challenge seem easier than it is, or basically already solved as these technologies get better, uh, because, of course, we live in a techno-determinism world, right? So if it's going to happen, then technologies will already make it happen. Or maybe it will just say, well, this is really just a matter of kicking a few quid towards research and switching out a few fuel sources. And do we really know that that is all that we're going to need to do to fix climate change? And I think when techno-optimism does that and serves that purpose, it does act as a discourse of delay by allowing us not to confront the things that we may need to confront. Another discourse of delay that the authors identify is fossil fuel solutionism, presenting fossil fuels as ultimately part of the solution. I think this rhetoric was definitely quite popular a few years ago as countries rushed to cut their emissions by switching from coal to natural gas, which emits about less than half the CO2 per kilowatt of energy produced, I believe, although there are people who will say that the methane that is produced and leaks from natural gas is important as well. Um, I don't want to get into that, that's a whole separate thing. The dash to gas, though, was a serious phenomenon at the time as people switched from coal to natural gas. Now, analysts will argue about the extent of this, but the fundamental problem is that the changes we're going to need to make are likely going to be substantial. Switching from coal to natural gas is better than nothing, but ultimately you're locking in a combustion-based economy where your means of harnessing energy is still digging stuff out of the ground and setting it on fire. And in essence, that's really what we have to move beyond. 
whether it's electrifying everything, moving to renewable electricity, switching to electric vehicles, and maybe some biofuels, hydrogen or CCS for sectors that are really difficult to do without setting things on fire. Now, depending on how you feel about biofuels, hydrogen or CCS, and this is something else that I feel like I sit on the fence on a bit, but um, these three technologies in particular are sometimes where techno-optimism can combine with fossil fuel solutionism to hamper certain types of solution. For example, if you're saying you'll switch to biofuels, as we mentioned with Exxon, you're locking in everyone to using internal combustion engines and not switching to electric engines. If you are going to build a new fossil fuel power plant, the science tells us that we can't be doing things like that to have a decent stab at the Paris Agreement. But if you're promising to put CCS on it, or maybe retrofit it later with CCS when there's a carbon price, then you can maybe have a justification for what you're doing, even though it does rely on this techno-optimism. And again, you're saying that fossil fuels can be part of the solution. They're what's going to provide the base load for variable renewables. And yeah, I suppose we could believe that would happen, but we'd have to see the CCS being constructed first. And hydrogen is another tricky one. Because hydrogen is a fuel that you burn, it is possible to produce hydrogen from electrolysis. And so the idea there is that you would use renewable electricity to split water into its constituent hydrogen and oxygen. Then you would take the hydrogen, you could put that in fuel cells, you could burn it, you could run, use that to run engines, use that to heat things up. That is a possible route for converting renewable electricity into a fuel that you burn without emissions. And so that's what people who want to talk about the hydrogen economy will talk about. But the reality is that the vast majority of hydrogen produced at the moment comes from natural gas. It comes from a process called steam methane reforming, where they split methane into CO2 and water vapour. And the CO2 is obviously emitted there. And in most cases where hydrogen is being produced, it's not actually being captured with CCS. And this is still the cheapest way to get hydrogen, even though the cost of electrolysis is coming down. So a super-duper hydrogenized economy would only be clean if electrolysis takes over from this methane reforming and we'd have more green hydrogen than blue hydrogen. Hydrogen advocates are arguing that this will happen, and that that shouldn't stop us from developing infrastructures that use hydrogen in the meantime. This whole thing is definitely a topic for another set of episodes. I'm sure there will be advocates of things like negative emissions, CCS, and so on, who say that it is possible, indeed necessary, for fossil fuels to be part of a net-zero economy. I think there's more pragmatic people, and maybe this is my camp, who don't really mind how it happens, providing it actually does happen. At this stage, though, I can sympathise with the perspective of the paper's authors that it's about time for people to demonstrate that these things can actually work. The main reaction is fine. If this is how you want things to be, then make it so. After all, surely the claim is that your businesses can still be profitable and compete when they're not pushing the cost of their pollution onto wider society and are instead paying to clean it up. So, go on then. And if you're concerned about some industries getting special treatment or <laughs> the idea that maybe uh, certain industries should be protected by governments, it, it's interesting because many of the people who've historically advocated for not acting on climate change are all about economic Darwinism and being competitive and not being competitive. And suddenly when the shoe is on the other foot and they are being concerned now about being outcompeted by renewables, um, some of the rhetoric starts to change, which is always interesting. But all you have to do, really, is look at a couple of numbers and say, OK, look at things like the percentage of fossil fuel generation that uses CCS 
and the percentage of the fossil fuel companies, their capital expenditure that is devoted to developing CCS, and it doesn't require a seasoned analyst to suspect that some things maybe aren't quite adding up. But these technologies and the more broad concept of fossil fuel solutionism, that fossil fuels and cleaner fossil fuels will be part of our energy mix, you know, this stuff has to be proved. And I think that anyone who's advancing that has these questions to answer. And if all you're doing is using it to avoid tricky questions about whether we really should be allowing new permits for fossil fuel exploration, extraction and exploitation projects, when many climate plans simply won't add up if they're allowed to go ahead, then fossil fuel solutionism is a discourse of delay. Another discourse of delay they identify is fairly classic, pretty easy to explain. All talk, little action. In other words, whenever a question on climate change comes up, a spokesperson for an industry or a government can simply say, well, we're world leaders on this issue, we've set an ambitious target, and we've declared a climate emergency, etc, etc. So of course, it bears repeating that targets alone are not going to solve the problem, just like setting up targets alone does not an archery competition make. They need to be backed up by plans that actually add up, function, and are being implemented and monitored to make sure that they're being implemented properly. And that is the difficult bit. That is, in fact, pretty much all of the work. I could say that I have a target for this show to have 100 million listeners. But if someone told me, you know, why are you spending all your time doing this podcast, and I told them about that target, they might still have some questions. Especially if targets are very long-term or sketchily defined, there can be concerns about kicking the can down the road with them. Now, the UK is a good example of a country that does have some mechanisms to try and prevent this from happening. So not only do we have a net zero target in 2050, but there are interim carbon budgets every few years, and an independent committee on climate change, who track progress towards these targets, scrutinise the impacts of new policy and try to determine whether the government's policies add up to meeting these targets, and then make recommendations on how they can be met. In some ways, the all-talk-little-action thing is kind of a mark of where we are in the climate space and in the climate debate at the moment. We're moving from old discourses of outright denial to new discourses of delay, and discourses of greenwashing as well. And those of us who want to see climate change tackled now have to be on the lookout for more subtle things. We need to be looking instead of people who are outright denying the problem, people who are saying one thing and doing another. Plans that don't add up. Offsetting, for example, that doesn't really work and talk without action. I think it's clear that this kind of problem is going to be increasingly concerning in future years, in part because of the delayed timescale on which these things take place, and the difficulty of saying with authority whether targets can be hit or not. Those who have listened to our negative emissions series will appreciate there are many different ways of hitting a target. For example, if you have a specific carbon budget, will you allow it to be exceeded if you promise to draw down emissions later on? Will you define it in such a way that you can count offsets towards it, and how good are those offsets? If so, even if you've effectively exceeded the budget, you can still make an argument that your target is still in place. And of course, by the time that your target is in place, if it's in 2040, 2050, you know, you can probably keep saying you're on track for that target for many, many years before anyone is going to start to say that you're not. So I think anyone reasonable will agree that targets are merely a first step and not sufficient on their own. But if someone's response to every climate question is simply to say, oh, we've got a target, we're really good, we're climate leaders and so on, that is an area where you need to think, okay, well, let's dig into this, let's ask the follow-up questions, and let's see whether this target is actually going to be fulfilled. Because otherwise, the all-talk-little-action discourse of delay.
Another discourse of delay the paper identifies is all carrots, no sticks. This dovetails a little with techno-optimism, but the basic point here is a discourse that only emphasises very voluntary policies without any countenance that restrictions might be imposed. Quoting from the paper, quote, On a more ideological level, many actors appear to shy away from restrictive policies altogether. A discourse of no sticks, just carrots argues that we should only pursue voluntary policies, carrots, in particular those that expand consumer choices, such as funding high-speed rail to substitute flights. More obviously restrictive measures, sticks, such as taxes or a frequent flyer levy, are deemed too paternalistic and overburdening for citizens. This discourse argues that such measures should be abandoned, despite the complementarity between carrots and sticks, and the need for bold approaches under strong climate policy. A good example is the German Free Democratic Party's strategy on climate action, which emphasises that greater efficiency reduces energy, resource use and emissions while improving quality of life, but refuses to prescribe sustainable behaviour through regulations. The push towards incremental solutions tends to avoid all options that are most threatening to existing power structures and practices. In doing so, these discourses leverage narrow definitions of success, positive framings and entrepreneurial values instead of transformative efforts and binding standards. When not confronted with scientific deliberation and debate on appropriate policy options, they can provide cover for ongoing unsustainable activities and hinder strong near-term climate action. End quote. I think you can see that different people's political mileage is obviously always going to vary on this issue, depending on how they're going to value the difference between putting regulations in place and solving problems and the damages from climate change and so on. If you're very optimistic on this front, then you might argue that not too many regulations are going to be necessary. Once clean or cheap alternatives are available, maybe fossil fuel use will eventually end in the same way that horse-drawn cars didn't need to be banned to lose out to cars in wealthy nations. But we also know from historic sources and historic successes like the Montreal Protocol that restrictions on pollutants and international bans can in fact work. Similarly, when it comes to energy efficiency and other standards, we talked about the CAFE standards and other things in our series on energy efficiency. We've actually seen historically how regulations can be drivers of innovation in different fields. So if you're doing a thing where you pit the entrepreneurial dynamic free market against a, uh, and that produces innovation and good things automatically, against a sort of narrow idea of the state which regulates things and prevents anything from succeeding, then that's obviously a far too narrow uh, framing of how technologies really develop and how society is really changed. And I think it's hard to see how we're going to transform society on the scale that's necessary to really address climate change without any kind of regulations at all, using incentives alone. And of course, you know, even if you want market incentives, um, you're going to have to establish that market and that's going to have to be regulated in itself. It's interesting, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently and there's a good point that a lot of people make, which is when people talk about a free market, what is a free market? What is a market in the absence of regulations? Because no one is talking about a perfectly free market where there is absolutely no kind of regulation that governs anything that you're capable of doing, right? Because in 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 such a free um, environment, what would prevent people from just taking your stuff? What would prevent people from defrauding you or conning you? That would actually be worse for commerce and trade than <laughs> than otherwise, right? And so you have to understand when people talk about this free market dynamic, you have to question what the free market is and, and which areas are freed and which areas are regulated. And I think when you look at things from that perspective, you can see that this is a bit of an oversimplifying thing. And to say that 
deregulation alone, just getting rid of regulations, is always an unparalleled good thing and spurs economic growth or whatever. It's far too simplistic a analysis of how very complicated socio-techno-economic systems work. And I think we all know that deep down, but it's important to note that this is the sort of thing that people can be concerned about. And again, I'm riffing here, but part of me also wonders whether maybe the COVID pandemic will have changed people's attitude towards this, because we might have seen, um, I mean, for a start, a, a precedent has been set for quite restrictive regulations. And I think before this had happened, people may not have even thought that doing such a thing was possible. But people have actually seen that there is ways in which people can be willing to comply with things, if they can see the benefit from it, to them at least. That doesn't mean that we should impose lockdowns or anything for climate's sake. I think that would be very damaging and destructive. But I think what it has shown is that had we relied on a purely voluntary approach of asking people to stay home and asking people to wear masks and so on, then there's a question as to how successful that would have been. And it seems that maybe when people have got a, an idea for or a taste for restrictive policies, it's not impossible to imagine this coming into the discourse a lot more. That's not me saying that I would recommend it, but it is me saying that I can see it happening more. And I also think that it, it is hard to see how we're going to be able to transform society in the ways that we need to, without any kind of regulations at all. Eventually, we're going to have to make sure that people aren't using internal combustion engines. And I think that I, I'm sort of I, I'm welcoming the fact that we're starting to see this being recognised uh, here in the UK with things like the ban on internal combustion engines that's coming in um, in the next few years. I forget when precisely, but. Uh, this sort of thing, I think, ultimately has to happen. And one thing that it does do is it gives a real clarity to industries that have to change, right? If you know that in 15, 10, 20 years, there's going to be some outright ban on internal combustion engines, then you're seriously going to have a fire in your belly to actually start switching to electric vehicles. And that's something that you just can't necessarily get from purely voluntary actions. So I think we're not saying that everything should be regulations, but if your approach is emphasising that no regulation should be considered at all and everything should be done on a purely voluntary or market-driven basis, then you can see why the authors for this paper would identify that approach as a potential discourse that helps delay. If only for delaying the discussion that we need to have about what is appropriate to do. Now, the final category of delaying discourses that the paper deals with are also perhaps familiar to listeners of this show. Surrender. So here, one of the ideas is that change is impossible, that any change that will be sufficient to solve the climate problem will be too large, too difficult to implement, or too far-reaching, or maybe it cuts against human nature. Maybe the idea is that the way we would live sustainably, that would be incompatible with a democratic society, or maybe that it's not even possible for us to do it. This way lies, I think, the potential seeds of things like eco-fascism, and that's really not a route that I think we want to go down, before you even get into the deep-seated pessimism of such an approach. Ultimately, even though this is going to be difficult, we can all agree that concluding that change is impossible and giving up on the idea is ultimately just going to serve delay. Similarly, we see doomism. Now, I've done a couple of episodes on climate change doomism, or doomerism, which will come out at some point in the future, 
They might be up on Patreon by the time I release this. For that reason, I won't go into it too much here, because there is a much, much longer piece on this for you to enjoy. But this is essentially the argument that it's hopeless. Catastrophic climate change is already locked in, and there's nothing we can do to prevent or avoid it or make things better. This idea, which I should say is not really supported by the science, is more mainstream than you might think. Liberal publications like The New Yorker, with thousands of readers, will publish pieces about how we have to admit that we can't prevent climate change. And even this framing, you know, to me is just too simplistic. Obviously we can't prevent what has already happened, the climate change that has already happened. It will always be within our power to prevent it from getting worse. Doomism, though, typically shifts the focus from mitigating or trying to prevent climate change to adapting to it, or in the worst cases, simply accepting our fate. This is typified by the motto of Archdoomer Guy McPherson, who has argued without any real scientific evidence for a number of years now that the end of the world is imminent and that we should live lives filled with love as the apocalypse rains down around us. Now we will talk about some key Duma arguments and Duma rhetoric in the specifically Dumery episodes, and as I said, a lot of it is based on some misrepresentations of science, so I won't go into it into too much depth here because we'll cover it in those episodes. This is just to say, on the point of doomism, concluding that there is no hope. It might feel, when you do that, that you're being clever and cynical, and not falling for greenwashing or nonsense, and that you're the only person who isn't deluded. There's this concept of depressive realism, which is that people, when they're depressed, are actually seeing the world for how it really is. And this is a sort of depressive realism for the state of the climate in general. And yes, the situation is bad. And yes, a lot of the things that we have to do do seem unlikely to work out the way that we hope. But ultimately, as harsh philosophically as it seems to point this out when people are in genuine despair, it doesn't actually help us to wallow in these feelings as much as it may be comforting to do so. It doesn't actually help the problem, it only helps delay, and that's why I think it is a discourse of delay that we need to think about. I want to finish on this point, not just to finish on an optimistic note and say that doomism is is not something that we should be giving into, but because this is one of the biggest worries I have amongst the people who are already interested in and concerned about climate change. We have to recognise that giving in to despair, giving in to doomism, is ultimately only going to serve to make the world worse, and that this disaffection, in turn, does help to delay real action. However pessimistic you may feel, and however unlikely it may sometimes seem that we will get there on this issue, it is always the case that a world where you are resigned to your fate is going to have a smaller chance of being a good world, and a good outcome, than a world where you're still trying to make things better. Perhaps it's not always enough to say that, and perhaps in the long run, dooming type people will be right, or or more accurate, or better off, more accurate than what I'm saying. And perhaps it's not always enough to say this, but it is something that I can say to you, and know when I say it, that it's truthful. So there we have it our little review of the 12 Discourses of Delay outlined in this paper. Those again. Redirecting responsibility, we have whataboutism, freeriderism, individualism. Emphasising the downsides of change, we have arguments from social justice, policy perfectionism, and appeals to well-being. Pushing non-transformative change, we have techno-optimism, fossil fuel solutionism, 
all talk, no actionism, and a preponderance for carrots over sticks. And in the surrender camp, doomism and the idea that change is really impossible. Altogether, a broad range of views and ideas that you're almost certain to encounter if you talk about climate change or listen to public discussions about it for any considerable length of time. And for that reason, I'd like to thank the authors of the paper for gathering these together. And there's been a few great communicative pieces around this as well. The carbon brief piece is there. There's also a cartoon um, which categorises all of these with uh, like cartoon representations of uh, the types of people who might be espousing them and the sort of things they might say. That's quite a cool thing um, to show people who might also be interested in getting involved in this discussion. And it's much shorter than a couple of podcasts. The reason to categorise arguments like this is not to say that these arguments are logical fallacies. I think there's this sort of old internet idea that argument and debate is simply about catching someone out in deploying a logical fallacy. And as soon as you do that, it means you automatically win. And I think that's quite a childish approach to argument and persuasion. These ideas, these discourses, are not automatically or altogether wrong. Many of them have aspects of truth to them, and others point out valid flaws which could arise in climate policies which do need to be addressed. So I don't think this paper is encouraging you to dismiss these arguments out of hand if you do hear them. But, by categorising the types of line that people take, you can see the sort of ways that the debate is being shaped at the moment, and you can critically question whether it's helping action or helping delay. The subtlety of these arguments, and the subtlety of where we're going to go from here, is that most of these arguments do acknowledge that climate change is a problem, and many of them do, at least on the surface, support some kind of action to mitigate that problem. So again, on the surface, it may appear to be okay. But just be aware that within them, if they're used badly or incorrectly, there is potential rhetoric that reinforces delay to the climate action that everyone seems to now agree that we need. And I think that delay is the last thing that we want or can afford to do. Thank you for listening to this mini-series from Physical Attraction and our Climate 201 series. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, there are many different ways you can help the show. You can listen to us on Patreon, which I've plugged a few times, patreon.com slash physicalattraction, or search for the podcast on Patreon. There you can subscribe and get access to lots of early release episodes, some special bonus episodes, some improvised episodes, book club episodes, and things that are only available there. So please do subscribe. can be a very low uh, sum per bonus episode that you subscribe for, and I'm very grateful to those of you who have done so already. There are other ways you can support the show, of course. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, at physicspod. You can talk to other friends about the show, tell people who might be interested to listen to it. You can review us on podcast platforms or in other places. And, of course, if you want to get in touch with us, on the website, there's the contact form. On physicspodcast.com, you will find the contact form. Any comments, questions, concerns you might have, I always love getting people's emails. I try to respond to as many of them individually as I can, as people who've had these responses can attest uh, when time permits. And if the questions are interesting, they'll come up in future shows. And normally I will tell people what the future shows are as well, so if you're interested in that, then you might find out that way. Um, But yeah, any comments, questions or concerns, please do send those over to the contact form on physicspodcast.com, where you'll also find a box for one-off donations, a PayPal box uh, that you can use for one-off donations if you would like to support what we're doing here. Until next time then, please do take care.